Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. because um, I have such great respect for Shmuley and what he has done uh, with uh, Valley Midrash and uh, his courageous stands on, uh, for social justice in the Jewish world. Um, there aren't many like him. In fact, I don't think there's any like him. <laughs> but maybe there are a few, but uh, he's really... Um, uh, you're, I think you probably all know it, but you're really blessed to have Shmuley Yankowitz as his, uh, and his leadership here in this community. So it's great for me to be with him and with, with you. Um, let me uh, say that um, trying to sum up 55 years of um, activism, um, and I think that's I've I counted it out, and it turns out it's, I think it's that. I started in 1964. That's, um, but, uh, and really trying to think of this, I, uh, I had people for years and years who've been saying, write an autobiography. This is the first step <laughs> in, in, that, in that direction. Um, uh, when I was first uh, um, a leader in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, I got an invitation by somebody from uh, Aunt Random House to write an autobiography. And I said, no way. I mean, I'm just, I was 29 years old. Come on. I, <laughs> now that I'm old enough, I don't have such an invitation anymore. But, <laughs> um, but I, I, I want to pick out some stuff uh, of my life that, or um, where I learned some stuff. And most of what I learned, I've forgotten already what I learned that's just part of, part of me. Um, I had a head start as um, an activist because um, my parents were Zionists uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. I was born in 1943. Um, and, um, but they were activists when Zionism was not popular in the Jewish world. When they had a, they had an anti-establishment consciousness in the in the 30s and 40s of the of, uh, in relationship to the Jewish world, because um, the mainstream um, uh, of Jewish life then until uh, until people really got the Holocaust was um, that we don't want to be associated with that. We're going to look un-American. We're going to. So my parents were started being activists, and I uh, wanted to to. Um, to um, give them the kavod, you know, although uh, although the shalom, they're both uh, they they've both passed from this world, but they, I want to bless their memory. But I, I also um, learned uh, um, about the ways in which um, activism 
can sometimes be transformed into um, self-interest at the, at the same time. And that is by the 1950s, when I, when I reached age 10 or so, I started to ask my parents, well, okay, the Zionism thing sounds like good, but why aren't we moving to Israel? <laughs> and um, they said, well, we're going to help um, uh, um, Israel from here. It needs the support of the United States, and we'll, we, we will give it by working on it from here. Um, this uh, at first seemed to make sense to me, but then as I watched what their actual trajectory it was, um, as leaders of the Zionist movement in the, in the 1950s, they became, um, they, let's say their leadership opened doors to them so that not too long went by before my father had been appointed a judge, he was a lawyer, and my mother had become the, um, the administrative aide in charge of politics for United States Senator Harrison Williams. So um, there was a path to ascendancy in, uh, in that neatly worked with activism and made me um, question the path um, as being, uh, particularly since it seemed clear to me that um, the people in the states, we lived in New Jersey, that, um, that in the, where there was a large Jewish population had very little problem getting um, um, the elected officials to become supporters of uh, the state of Israel. Um, it didn't cost them anything. And, um, and it was sort of an easy, easy path. Um, so I learned in that um, to question um, the, um, uh, my own motives and the motives of others in, in, uh, in activism of um, wanting to be sure that the, not only the goal was pure, but that the path was also a, a pure or good path. Um, and that led me to engage in somewhat of a rebellion against my parents as I decided that the path for me would be in, um, into Judaism. My parents were um, uh, minimally observant, belonged to a conservative synagogue, went to high holiday services, and, and lit candles on Friday night, but they didn't observe Shabbat or they weren't into, um, into it until I got into it. Um, starting about age 12, and my, I, I have to say, looking back, that I see my path originally as being a very smart path for rebellion against my parents. <laughs> because because um, my mother, in particular, was outraged that when I announced at age 12, uh, 13 that I was going to be a rabbi. Um, and um, spent most of my teen years denouncing... Uh, denouncing me for, for that and uh, uh, urging me to not influence my sister. And, um, um, uh, and this despite the fact that my, my grandfather was a, um, uh, an Orthodox uh, has, uh, rabbi and um, who had been, um, who was in the, um, uh, the tradition of uh, rabbis that traced themselves back to the Baal Shem Tov. Um, uh, uh, through, um, oh, now I'm forgetting who, but anyway, that, so that, there was a rich something there, and I had experienced it going to his little shtibel, um, 
because uh, there was something that happened in Natchtibal on, on Yom Kippur, which was the only time I got there because my, my father felt uh, uh, obliged to go and visit his, his father um, on Yom Kippur in the, uh, in the afternoon. There was something happening there that was very different from what happened in the, uh, the 2,000 seat synagogue that my parents belonged to. Um, where you couldn't get in as a, on high holidays as a, as a child, um, and where literally, the, um, when I would say, I just need to see my father for a mother for a minute, they would say, okay, but don't let me catch you praying. <laughs> Honestly, that's what, it's not a joke, it really happened. Okay, so, um, um, but I, I did choose that path, and largely, after first encountering uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, who was at a retreat that the synagogue had set up and um, who spoke in, in a language and with ideas that reminded me of the experience that I'd had in the Orthodox Shtibel, of something happening there that hadn't happened in any other place in my life, something that, um, that I would say was the experience of being in the presence of God or um, of um, a, um, a deep, um, well, um, Rudolf Otto called it mysterium tremendum, great mi mysterious reality of, uh, of the universe. That, um, and um, so I started to read Heschel, um, his book, God in Search of Man. The next summer at Camp Ramah, I was there that summer when um, I was, and I had chosen to, it was a hard book to read for a 12-year-old at first, but um, at 13, I, I had decided to read one chapter each week on Shabbos, sitting there, and there's Heschel. I didn't know he was even there. He stops, sees me reading his book, and says, I don't know any 13-year-old who's reading my book. Can I meet you? So he sits down with me, and... From there came um, a connection that um, deepened. He invited me to come to um, meet with him at, at JTS, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and I met with him um, every, every, uh, twice a year for, um, in my uh, high school days and then went to, um, uh, to uh, Columbia as an, as an undergraduate and simultaneously taking courses at the seminary and had uh, an incredible opportunity to, um, to meet and um, to get to know him and to be mentored by him. Uh, he set up a private meeting with me that um, would take place usually every once, once every month, sometimes once every two months, but over the course of the years that I was there, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Now, um, saying, well, what does this have to do with your activism? Well, it had to do with why I didn't at first become a rabbi. Because what I discovered in being um, part of the seminary, and I actually the seminary was at that time setting up a, a, an organization for college-age youth called Atid, the Future. And uh, in its second year, I was elected the national president. So um, now... As national president, I had something to bring to it and that I also brought to Heschel, which is that I, my mother's senator, the, um, the one that she was working for, um, 
was uh, at that time on the Labor Committee and with a special focus on the subcommittee dealing with migrant labor. And, um, and they were seeking support to, um, to, to get um, the administration to, to change the, the rules so that there would at least be toilets in the, uh, in the fields where the where workers uh, worked and some running water uh, didn't exist in the, the, uh, the 1950s. And in but in the early 60s, um, that was part of what they were trying to accomplish. So I brought those ideas into Heschel. And then Heschel, uh, in turn, came and spoke about them at a national meeting of, of our youth organization, the ATID. And I guess this was um, uh, counts as a first activist activity, although it was very very slight activism, right? Very safe activism, but it was something uh, in that um, it it brought into the Jewish world this consciousness of um, of uh, migrant labor and their struggles, which um, have not been tremendously improved ever since, but were slightly improved as a result of this, um, uh, of this uh, action from, um, from the, uh, the Senate, which did eventually pass some rules, rules in regard to that. Um, but while I was at, uh, now in this position as, um, um, as the chair of uh, the, the president of one of the affiliated organizations of the United Synagogue, um, I got to um, learn about the rest of the institutions and uh, uh, both the seminary itself and um, the other institutions. And amongst the things I learned was that um, um, although um, Heschel was, um, was good for fundraising because people in the, in the synagogues liked, liked him and increased their donations, at the seminary himself, itself, he was deeply disrespected. He was disrespected because at the time, the, um, the leadership of the seminary and um, wanted uh, to make the seminary seem like more of a credible uh, uh, intellectual institution. And, um, uh, and uh, so for them, that meant primarily having subjects that were that would be taught there that could gain the respect of people teaching at Columbia, but also pe people teaching at other institutions and um, other, other uh, higher institutions, uh, institutions of higher education. So, um, <clears throat> so th what that narrowed down to was Talmud, uh, because um, the way Talmud was taught was a lot about um, the way it was influenced by Greek culture or responding to or rebelling against Greek culture, et cetera, um, uh, hence history. Um, and so there's Talmud there was, and there was history, and to some extent also literature. Now Heschel was, if you can put this in the picture of an institution trying to get itself more acknowledged as a legitimate intellectual institution, Heschel was the professor of mysticism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, this was not this. So, 
Um, so, and the students at, at JTS increasingly thought, what do we, mysticism, that's not gonna help me get a job in a, um, a well-financed uh, suburban synagogue. That's, this mysticism stuff is not gonna, is, is no value to me. And so they really didn't pay very much kavod, re respect to Heschel. And um, um, my Talmud tutor um, at the time, uh, particularly in my last year, I, I was still on the path of going to the rabbinical school, but, um, and, I, and Heschel wrote my recommendation and I got accepted in the rabbinical school. But my tutor, um, uh, who was Art Green, who became well-known in the Jewish world as later on became president of the, rabbinic, uh, the uh, Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and also a great writer on uh, Hasidism. But he, at the time, he was my Talmud tutor, and he was telling me, Michael, it'd be a big mistake to go here. I wish I hadn't, I wish I hadn't gone here in the first place, but I already have several years uh, in the rabbinical school. Don't go here. The, these, and he totally validated the experience that I had of um, Heschel being disrespected. And, um, and this was hard um, because Heschel felt this, um, but he also, um, this was the place he had. He applied to be a teacher at the Hebrew University. The Hebrew University turned him down for the same reasons, that they, they also wanted to be a respectable institution. So they had people who were studied mysticism, but they didn't have anybody who was a mystic. Do you know the difference? I learned that also later on when I studied Marxism at, uh, um, uh, as one of the subjects uh, in philosophy. When I got my PhD in philosophy at the University of California, I took a course on Marxism, and it turned out that the guy who taught it, a nice, wonderful Jewish guy, um, but quite conservative, said, said well, yes, I'm, uh, I'm a Marxologist. I study Marx. I don't, I'm not a Marxist. I don't take any of it seriously, but I study it. Um, so, um, but I learned a very important lesson there. Um, and that was that um, there's a big difference between mastering a subject and moving a heart. And, um, and that has stayed with me as being a central issue in my life of, um, of recognizing that difference. I didn't know, I, I wasn't ready to say, I'm not gonna become a rabbi. I decided, okay, I'm gonna go for a year, um, take a year off and get out of New York, which I couldn't stand the weather. And um, so um, the best offer I got was from um, UC Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. I never knew anything about Berkeley. I had never heard about um, a, a social change movement other than the Democratic Party. Um, so I arrived in Berkeley and uh, it happened that just when I arrived was the, um, free, the beginning of the free speech movement. Well, I thought this had nothing to do with me at first, um, but um, I, why would I care about um, what's happening at this campus? I'm only gonna be here for a year, then I'm gonna go back to rabbinical school and uh, and do a PhD at, New York, at Columbia, because I had also been accepted into Columbia for a graduate school. So, um, but after a few weeks, there was this incident in which, now it turned out that the free speech movement was about the right of students to organize on campus 
for civil rights demonstrations that were taking place off campus that often involved sit-ins, um, hence illegal activity. And the university had uh, uh, issued a rule saying it's illegal to um, be a student here and, uh, and use the campus facilities to advocate for off-campus illegal activity. Okay, and by illegal activity, they were talking about the um, de facto the civil rights movements um, because that's the only activity that students were engaged in that was an illegal activity. Um, so um, the um, a, a nice Jewish boy named Jack Weinberg set up a table on campus um, for Campus Core, one of the anti-war, uh, one of the um, uh, anti-segregation. Um, um, pro-civil rights movement uh, organizations. And um, the, um, the university um, sent one of its um, policemen in a police car into the middle of the big plaza at, the, um, at the, the university where students often gathered um, and where he had set up his table and arrested him and put him in the police car at which point hundreds of students sat down around the police car and basically said, you're gonna have to run us over to get him out and arrested and, and you know, to take him to jail. And what ensued then was a, um, a, um, um, an open um, free speech ac activity in which people jumped up on the, um, the police car and started to speak about what, uh, what was ever moving them, including people who were against what we were doing, saying why we shouldn't do this and you know, that, we should, that we had no right to do it. And, but it was an open forum um, and it was beautiful. And uh, I was somewhat moved by it, but I was uh, at the time more, uh, I had just learned about the uh, amnesty that the uh, West German government was, prepared, was providing for the, um, uh, for former Nazis, and so I had started an or a little organization called uh, Students Against Nazi Amnesty, and I was trying to plan for a demonstration in, in uh, San Francisco. Um, but um, I came back, so I passed by, I listened for a while, then I passed by, went to study for, uh, in the, in the uh, library, but came back and uh, around 10 o'clock at night, um, and there the scene was still going on, hundreds of students sitting, sitting around the, the police car. And, but now a different element came in. Suddenly arrived, uh, there arrived several hundred um, um, fraternity boys with their beer bottles and started throwing beer bottles at the people sitting down. And, um, saying, give us our car. Now these were, um, at the time, um, all very clearly um, Aryan, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, tough guys, right? That football team and lots of others. And they were throwing these things. And I realized, from the standpoint of those who were sitting down, I was part of the crowd that was around them that was hostile. So I sat down. I sat down and that became my first little act of, of rebellion. Uh, and um, shortly thereafter, I did organize a demonstration in San Francisco of students against Nazi amnesty with several hundred people. 
and um, was asked to join the um, executive committee of the free speech movement because um, that executive committee was trying to represent a, a wide range of organizations. And um, so suddenly I was an activist and uh, even in a leadership position. Now, of course, I, I didn't know what I was getting into, but um, I was learning about the fact that there is a movement um, and that the movement isn't just the Democratic Party, that there are people, all kinds of ideas about changing the world. Um, so, um, so the short of the story is, is that I ended up in Sproul Hall, the administrative um, building of the University of California, during the big sit-in that took place um, in protest of the university's policies. And, um, um, and when it was clear that um, we were, nothing was happening except that we were going to stay there the night, I ran home to get my Hanukkah candles and because it was, it was the third night of Hanukkah. And um, so I had to have that in the building to light the candles. When I got back there with that, the leadership asked me, would I mind doing a Hanukkah service for everyone? I said, no, I, mean, I don't mind. But so that was my next act, activist act. At 1 o'clock in the morning, um, I led a Hanukkah service for some 200 people who had come to the Hanukkah service. There were about 800 sitting, sitting in at that time. And um, after doing that, the leadership asked me if I would, uh, when the arrest started of around 4 in the morning and they were pulling students down the steps um, and uh, basically in a fairly brutal way ar arresting them, okay, down the steps of like second and third floor of the, of the building. So lots of them were getting hurt um, and you could hear lots of screams and so forth. Um, and would I mind going outside to tell the, um, now it was thousands of people outside what was happening inside. And then I um, stayed there outside and, um, and continued to speak now so that, so that by noon there were about easily 10,000 students there. And, um, and I was suddenly a leader, <laughs> not elected or whatever, but there I was in this position. Um, and, um, um, and what happened soon thereafter in the next few days was that the university was shut down by a strike of students. And the outcome of the strike was that the, um, and the mass arrests was that the, the news, uh, the media suddenly went from siding with the university, whereas, if, uh, two months before, they were quoting uh, the, the, the president of the university, uh, uh, Clark Kerr, as saying, oh, they're all, uh, they're 49% um, of the demonstrators are communists, okay? Which rang to the heart of people who were anti-communists at that moment to suddenly saying, no, these are just students asking for something that's reasonable. And the short of that is, that the chancellor of the university who had called the police got fired and the, the uh, university um, adopted a new policy that allowed us to, um, to have this free speech. Now, why am I telling you this in all this detail? Well, because what I learned in this, this was something um, quite amazing, that ordinary people could have a, an impact 
on history, on what was going on. And it wasn't just there because um, the, the free speech movement in uh, Berkeley um, was contagious and suddenly was happening in colleges all around the country. In the, um, so that in the beginning of 65, there was a huge upsurge of demonstrations on campuses and successful demonstrations uh, following our model. So um, this is an insight that carried me to this moment. I was just a little kid, right? I was 21 years old. Um, most of the demonstrators were someplace between, let's say, 19 and 24, 25. Um, and um, yet, by standing up for what we believed in and being willing to sacrifice for it, willing to go to jail for it, willing to, um, that we had made a tremendous impact on the consciousness of people at that time. And that convinced me that um, the realists were mistaken. The realists who told us, look, the Board of Regents is made up of, and this is true at that time as it is still true today, largely of representatives of big capital. And what they want from uh, the university is for the university to become a service station training people who can uh, take the jobs in the major industries so that um, they have adequate training and we don't have to train them ourselves. They can get the training there. They can learn economics. They can learn business. They can learn many other things. Uh, Clark Kerr had just written a book about this called uh, the, the Multiversity. And it was about the way that the university was there uh, serving, Clark Kerr was the president of the university, uh, how serving the, um, the interests of uh, big business, which he was not revealing it. He was thinking, this, this is a great thing. I'm showing the, you know, I'm convincing the business community that they really should f help fund the university because we're training people in that way. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. But, um, but what I learned was that even though it was true that they had all the power, they had a lot of power, there was also a lot of power in us. And uh, that showed up again in um, many, many times in my life. And I'll just tell you a few more. Um, the, um, um, there came, uh, came a day um, when uh, two years later, um, well, I helped organize uh, a large teaching against the war in Vietnam. And, um, um, and my roommate, Jerry Rubin, was, arrest, uh, was, uh, uh, was the co-organizer, or one of the co-organizers, and really the main brain behind this, um, both this uh, teaching against the war that actually had some 30,000 people attending, and then the troop train demonstrations where we would sit on the, troop tra uh, on the, the tracks and try to stop the trains that were taking inductees to the Oakland embark their embarkment place where they were then taken to. And we, we were risking our lives. Um, and actually, most of us, like me, were chickens and jumped off the, at the last moment because they didn't want to. I mean, there were some people who stayed and lost, lost limbs and so forth. 
Um, Jerry had come up with this idea, and he was subpoenaed to the House and American Activities Committee. And he went um, dressed in, in um, American revolutionary uh, dress, uh, as they dressed in, uh, in, in 1776. And, um, and essentially made a mockery of the House and American Activities Committee, which um, didn't know how to handle it. Um, they didn't know how to, how to deal with somebody who, was, who wasn't afraid to say, you know, he wasn't a communist. He said, no, I'm not a communist. No, I haven't ever belonged to the communists, but I'm for overthrowing this government. I want, I want this government to stop the war or else we replace it with a different government. Um, so um, it was a brilliant move. And um, so the next year, uh, Jerry and I organized another thing. Jerry and I had... had listened to, this, to the black power movement that was just emerging at that time. And, um, and, what, and though the, the headlines were, the black power movement throws out white, white people, and who are the white people? They were mostly Jews. Most of, uh, a, a, let's say, a very disproportionate number of the people in those movements were, were, um, who were going down to the south, et cetera, were Jewish. Um, so there was all this talk about, oh, it's anti-Semitic, that, that, that they really want to get rid of the Jews, etc. Um, but as we listened to them, they, what they were saying to white people was, you don't have to come here for the South to organize. We'll do that. You organize in your own communities. So we started to do that um, and um, decided we would have a teach-in about black power at the university. And um, um, this became controversial very quickly. And, um, uh, and one of the places it became controversial was with a small group of um, black, uh, black students who were not into black power. They were into primarily, they had a little um, black student union that was focused on giving support to people so that they could get the, the appropriate um, credentials to join the black bourgeoisie and become upper, you know, middle class or maybe even upper middle class. Um, weren't very many of them because there weren't that many blacks in the in, at the university at all. Um, and they protested. You can't do that here. Um, we're the black people here. You can't run a, an event about Black Power Day and without... Uh, as white people. So, um, um, and they demanded that we apologize and so forth. And of course, it ended up being me who was the one who would have to do that because I was basically my idea and Jerry Rubin's idea. And um, so, okay, so I get up to apologize, but then I say, um, you know, um, uh, I'm sorry that we didn't consult with you, et cetera. But we were working on this um, idea that, uh, that had been put forward by Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael and so, several others, that our task was to organize in the white community. And whites should organize whites. And that's what this was about. Um, well, they didn't accept that at all. But um, what this, this particular incident taught me was something that remains um, relevant to politics even to this moment, which is, in the liberal and progressive world, 
there's a tendency to say, um, you've got to subordinate your white privilege to listening to this, uh, whatever black people are telling you or people of color are telling you is the right thing to do. What I learned in this incident, and I've learned it over and over and over again, is that that is um, um, incoherent uh, as a um, way of guiding oneself. Because it turns out there isn't one black or one people of color view of what one should do. There are conflicting views having to do with the differences in strategy between different groups within that community and in every other people of color community. And now I'll extend it further and say in every uh, community of um, people who have been previously oppressed or are currently oppressed. When you go to them and say, you've got to follow the leadership of your community, it turns out that that's incoherent because there are alternative leaderships uh, um, who are challenging each other inside their, and they have differences about what the right strategy is. So it's still upon us as individuals and us even as allied movements to decide who we're going to ally with, which ones we're going to ally with. So do you know what I'm saying here? <laughs> so, um, so that, now translate that into the Jewish world and you see the problem about here in our world as well, okay? Um, there are many different positions in the Jewish world, let's say in relationship to the uh, to um, Israel-Palestine, many different positions. And if, um, uh, if we're to say, you have to follow the leadership of the Jewish world, well, how do you determine who that is? That depends on who you think should, should be the leadership, who's got the smartest or best approach. And, um, and denouncing people for different views, including views that are very challenging. Let me take an ex uh, the most challenging one, um, the view of a Nature Karta, that is of a uh, group of ha uh, Hasidim in Israel who don't recognize the right of the state of Israel to exist and believe that, that it, it, the state of Israel is itself um, uh, one of the biggest destroyers of Jewish values and Judaism. Now, leaving aside what is or is not right about what they're saying or how what part of it they're saying is right. Um, others say, oh, they should be locked up in jail. They should not be allowed to be citizens of the state. They shouldn't. Um, but um, they are another voice. And there are other voices in the ultra-Orthodox community, uh, some of which have made their peace with the state of Israel, and some of which look at the, on the state of Israel as not fundamentally different than the czar, but and where the relationship to the state of Israel is, they should try to um, maximize um, uh, whatever benefits they can get from the government. And that's what they did with, uh, in the czar's government, and that's what they do in the government of the state of Israel. They seek to maximize their own advantage um, and use whatever political power they can get for that sake, for that purpose. Are they wrong? I'm not making a judgment here. I'm really saying that, um, that you can't answer the question of what is the right way to be Jewish um, or the right way to be uh, supportive of Jewish causes, black causes, uh, women's causes, gays' causes, by saying, go to the leadership and what they're saying, 
because it turns out that there isn't a leadership. There are conflicting leaderships with different, different approaches. And as I mentioned to you earlier, um, uh, when my parents were Zionists, they were seen as the extremists outside the, outside the ballpark because the mainstream of the Jewish world in the 1930s was let's prove how American we are and show the 19, well, actually from the 1880s on, but definitely from the, uh, from the 1920s on, um, let's show how American we are. That was the mainstream position. So you have to be prepared if you're going to be an activist in the world to face the fact that some people are going to say you are against them or insensitive to their needs, etc., no matter what side of a variety of important questions arise in any social change movement. Get what I'm saying? So this is a very important, uh, important insight to me because it has given me the strength to stand up to what was illegitimate criticisms um, the, and, um, and to say following, bl follow black leadership is not a sufficient guide for where, where to go. Um, so anyway, I then became uh, chair of Students for Democratic Society in Berkeley and, um, and then um, became the direct, the, um, on the board of um, the Peace and Freedom Party that made an alliance with the Black Panther Party. Um, and in that position, was given the amazing opportunity to meet with um, MLK Jr. Um, to try to convince him to run for president in 1968. This was a, a month before he was murdered. Um, and um, um, it was a, an amazing opportunity, and, um, but also a sad, sad moment because uh, uh, he was assassinated and then Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. And that, that third after JFK had been assassinated, led many people in the movement to begin to say, um, um, there's no hope. There's no hope inside um, for changing, changing things. And uh, we have to put our bodies on the line and, um, and our lives on the line. And the way that we should do that is by no longer having big uh, marches that are nonviolent, but instead using the, the, the tools of the enemy of, of the state against the state. And um, uh, that became all the more popular after the, what the governor of, uh, of uh, Illinois described as a police riot that happened in the summer of 68 when um, police attacked the demonstrators, um, uh, amongst them me, who, um, um, who were demonstrating outside the, um, uh, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And um, the violence was, I was knocked unconscious, but that was you know, not, so, not the worst of the problems. A lot of other people were hurt even worse. Um, uh, and um, so what emerged out of that was a um, particularly, um, uh, um, I believe, extremely destructive um, tendency amongst people in the left, uh, some people on the left, who formed an, formed a, uh, an organization called um, the Weathermen. 
Now, the Weathermen was a, originally come out of Students for Democratic Society, but they, um, they, um, they overtly called for violence against the state and against, um, and that then went in a, um, in a particularly um, destructive direction um, when they um, said that anybody who wasn't willing to do this was playing to white skin privilege and that um, white skin privilege was um, uh, you were protecting yourself and not paying attention to the fact that meanwhile the, sta the, the state is um, murdering as it was between five and 700 Vietnamese every week and this would be on the television every night because the, the government was celebrating, look, we've killed 500 of them this week or whatever, 700 of them this week or whatever. Um, and that, was, that wasn't even counting all the people who would die from Agent Orange and other uh, herbicides that were put on the people of, uh, on the fields in Vietnam, which caused huge amount of starvation uh, as, as, um, um, as the uh, growth, the places where they grew their food were being destroyed. So they had a point that, we were, that the United States was engaged in, in this act of violence, but it was not a good point. It was not, it did not, that they were engaged in violence against uh, people of the earth and in the United States against, um, uh, against African-Americans, in particular um, members of the Black Panther Party who um, had, in my view, mistakenly taken on the notion of we, we have these guns in our hands, even though um, uh, it was totally crazy to think that um, the amount of African-Americans who would take up the gun could possibly stand up against the power of the state. But the state used that opportunity to say, yeah, they're all violent, and then went in and killed lots of Panthers who had no, were not doing anything violent at all. Um, so along come the weathermen and saying, yeah, you're standing on your white, white skin privilege by not engaging in violence. But from my standpoint, violence was our enemy. And so when I got, when I was appointed, uh, when I, got this position to be an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Washington in, the next, in this next year, I set up an organization called the Seattle Liberation Front. And um, our goal was to try to speak to Americans um, in a way that um, showed that we actually were on their side and not, not against them. And um, uh, so I developed a tax initiative that would reduce the tax burden on, on working people and also require that federal taxes would be paid to a holding agency in the, in, in the state of Washington until the war in Vietnam was over. And in the meantime, it would use the, the, um, the, um, uh, uh, the part of that money to fund um, uh, projects for in the for the central cities where there was uh, black, uh, heavy black uh, representation uh, to fund uh, um, health care and to fund um, uh, child care. Okay, now this idea um, was, took off amaz amazingly very quickly and um, led to um, uh, us, for, on the one hand, being denounced by the governor and the, and the um, and who would the the um, 
a Secretary of State who would soon run and be elected to the U.S. Senate, um, and denounced me in particular because I was the um, the professor at their being paid out of their out of their tax money to be organizing people in this way. Um, uh, but we were being denounced, not just by the government, but by the weathermen for our white skin privilege because caring for white people, um, uh, now, of course, this was the, the, um, the initiative that we, um, this is a ballot initiative, okay, that we're putting on the ballot. And we got about half of the number required before uh, the next thing happened, which was the federal government stepped in and indicted us for um, a demonstration that we had organized in protest of the war and in protest of what had happened in the trial in Chicago. But in any event, um, um, the, the, the weathermen were denouncing us for white skin privilege, and it became a recurrent theme that still exists in, um, in, much, uh, in se certain sections of the left. Um, um, that if you're helping white working people, and by the way, the plan was not, no place said, do this for white people. It was for everybody in the society. But from their standpoint, well, if, it's, if you're taking care of everybody, then, and I, I mean, is, I don't know if I'll get this far, but so I'll just go jump to the end to say, two weeks ago in, in Detroit, I'm speaking to a group of people there about, um, a way of speaking to the people who, we, who have moved away from the, the left, and this is what I'll talk about tonight in much more detail, but I'm speaking to them about this, and, they, and at least a few of the people in the room are saying, well, you're, you're just playing to white fragility, you, you know, that, um, and, um, and you'll hear when I lay out the program, there's nothing about white in it. It's, it's benefiting everybody in the society to, to do the things that, that a um, movement for um, what I'm calling the, um, uh, the movement for love and justice movement, a love and justice movement, um, is calling for a variety of changes in the society, um, not for whites, for everyone, okay? But, it, but it's also for whites and and in particular, they're objecting to the fact that I've said that if we follow the path that I'm laying out, that we can win back people who used to vote Democrats who are now voting Republican or who refuse to vote at all and explaining why that happened and how, how we could win such people back. And they're saying, ah, but those are mostly whites. Am I out of time already? Let's just take two or three more minutes so we can get the questions also. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I'll skip ahead and um, uh, say that I, I'll just say um, that uh, being attacked for having the wrong positions is something that is a, um, a necessary feature of being willing to be part of the liberal and progressive world. And um, the attacks are often personal um, and they are deeply um, hurtful to people. And as a result, one of the reasons why the movements of the 60s did not continue was because there was so much of people putting each other down for not being anti-racist enough, anti-sexist enough, anti-whatever. Um, I mean, even, and you still have an ego, even if you have an ego 
there's a problem. You shouldn't have. So um, a lot of what I've done subsequently has been to try to understand what I call surplus powerlessness. That is the way in which people who are themselves relatively powerless, given the unequal distribution of wealth and power in the, in the country, make themselves even more powerless um, by uh, seeing themselves as weak or uh, and then instead of using their outrage at what's going on in the big picture, they turn that outrage against people who have marginally more power than they. So in the movements, um, and this is something that uh, eventually was picked up by people in the women's movement who started to talk about how this even happened in small groups in the women's movement, that people were putting down those who were most articulate or the most effective leaders because they felt um, they, it was safe to do that, whereas they didn't feel safe attacking the larger society. And this has been a, a dynamic that um, has played out over the years in social change movements that people will take on much um, the local person rather than the system, right? But it's the system that the local person is, is, uh, is serving and they don't know how to get out of doing that, okay? But people um, want to feel like, um, well, I can attack somebody who's in my, in my organization. And so often what happens is that organizations that start out with the highest of purposes end up being dominated by people attacking each other in those movements and making them a place that nobody really wants to be in because they're not filled with the values that led people to the left in the first place. So that's, that's more of what I'll talk about tonight. But the surplus powerlessness is important to understand because it, the, the, the directing of outrage at people with marginally more, more power than you really undermines people's capacity to take on the larger systems that need to be transformed. So this is a little bit of uh, what I was going to talk about, and I'm happy to um, take questions and uh, arguments and whatever. Um, how much? <clears throat> mm. speak your truth, other people, and then you know, get into public discourse about it, and there, there can be personal insults, and mm -hmm. it's a very, very, it's a difficult um, uh, field to walk through the landmines. Yes. Now we've got even fake news, mm. where you don't even know if people are speaking their truth. Do you have ideas on how to navigate this situation? Um, well, I mean, at one level, I'd say, yeah, listen to Amy Goodman on, on uh, what's the name of her show, uh, Democracy Now. Um, every morning, it's it's broadcast. You can get it on, and get everybody you know to listen to Amy Goodman. And uh, there are a few other such things. Uh, I don't know if um, if you get any of the um, Pacifica stations down here. Can you get them on radio? What? Get them on Radio Phoenix, my, uh, my radio station. Really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, there, there are a few places where you can get, turn to. Um, uh, it's definitely not the New York Times, unfortunately. 
that the New York Times is so biased in, what, in the way that it, it's got its themes and it's going to project that, the news that fits those themes and never, um, rare, uh, rarely will um, represent what other positions, not only the right, but also of the left. Um, it's, it, it takes determination. It takes some kind of commitment to, 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 um, to uh, getting um, a balance. Uh, I generally um, try to read the, the Wall Street Journal um, too, because the Wall Street Journal has some reason to tell more truth than the New York Times because they're speaking directly to the ruling elite and the ruling elite actually want to know what's going on so that they can, you know, because so they sometimes will get better coverage. Of course, they're also very biased in their ways, but, um, but sometimes they'll tell you stuff that the New York Times won't tell you because they're, they have, you know, the, the ruling elites do want to know what's actually going on and they don't want Fox News. They want to know what's, what is happening. And um, so I try to read the, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and then listen to uh, um, programs on uh, uh, the uh, local Pacifica station and listen to Amy Goodman's uh, morning news. Um, and, and then I have to spend half an hour or an hour each day just deleting all the other things that come in my mailbox from, from every which possible source, um, and not always successfully trying to get rid of them for over some <laughs> period of time. I don't, it's not really answering the question of how do we help others get, you know, get news, except to say that we should be advertising the, good, the ones that you trust and urging people Okay, just as I would like to hope that you will urge people to read the book um, um, Revolutionary Love because it goes way, 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 way beyond anything I've said here today. I mean, I've barely scratched the surface of what I, the new ideas or the new ways of talking that I present in that book. But, um, but yeah, convince people, urge people to listen to alternative sources and tell them how to do that. Yeah. What for you has made your spiritual activism religious? Well, um, I mean, the, the, the first thing I'd say is that um, uh, in my view, to believe in God is to believe that there is a force in the universe that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. Um, now, where do I get this from? Well, first of all, um, if you look at the word yud hey vav hey. That, that gets translated in, in English as God. But in Hebrew, yud heh vav heh is something that we don't pronounce. So some people have pronounced it in different ways. It got to be pronounced as Adonai, but Adon, the Adon means master. And so many people today are objecting to that as being a patriarchal uh, concept and changing Adonai to Yah or yud heh, those first two letters. But the yud heh vav heh was not meant to be pronounced. And it was, um, it's, first of all, it's almost impossible to pronounce it. And, um, and of course, if none of the words in Torah have, uh, have uh, the uh, vowels. So you don't. But if you look at that, the, the last three letters of that, yud heh vav heh, 
that, as I say, is what always gets translated as God. They are hey, vav, hey. And that is hoveh, the present, the present tense, the present, the present reality, that which is. Now, when you have a verb and um, you want to indicate future tense in Hebrew and uh, allowing for the, the, um, uh, the, the sexism of assuming that God was a man, then you put a yud in front of it. Put a, if, you have the, if you have the three core um, letters of, a, of a, an action verb, you put a, a yud in front of it, and it's third person masculine future tense. So if you look at that yud hey vav hey, together it means moving from that which is, hoveh, to that which can be, yud hey vav hey. So that's, that's who we're praying to, the force in the universe that makes possible a transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. So when Moses asked God, look, you're sending me on this impossible mission to go talk to this Pharaoh. And one of the things he's going to ask is, he's got a book of a thousand, a thousand gods there. Which god is yours? You know, who are you representing here? So God says, I will be whom I will be. Tell them, Ehiyah sent me. Okay? Now, Ehiyah is, I will be. God is that which can and will be. It is the possibility of possibility. To speak about God, to understand, and if you read Torah this way, you will suddenly understand why it's a revolutionary book. Even though it's got a lot of patriarchal and, and counter-revolutionary ideas in it, its core is a revolution. It's a, it's a, a revolutionary idea. It is, the, it is that there is something about this universe that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And that is who we worship, what we worship is that force that makes possible a different reality. And why do, why do people hate the Jews? Well, they didn't start hating them with, uh, with uh, Jesus. They were already hating them in the Roman Empire for hundreds of years before and in the Greek Empire because the Jews were the most rebellious group in those. Whenever there was a rebellion, Jews had a disproportionate part in it. Why? Because the central message of the Jewish people was, we were slaves and now we are free. The central message of every ruling elite from starting 10,000 years ago until the present is nothing can be changed. The way things are is the only way things can be. So don't waste your life energy trying to change things in the world. Those who have power will continue to have power, and those who are powerless will continue to be powerless. That message is the core of what the ruling elites have continually tried to convince people is the truth of the universe. And if that's the truth of the universe, then learn to um, watch the river flow. Sit by it. Meditate on your own internal reality. But don't get involved in trying to change things because nothing can change. Okay? So God is the possibility of possibility. God is the possibility of possibility. God is that which makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. That's yud vav that's ehyeh asher ehyeh. So when God says, tell them, I will be, God is saying to Moses, I'm not part of the furniture of the universe. I'm not another thing in a universe filled with things, even big things. I'm not, I'm not even a big, big, tough man up in heaven. I am the possibility of transformation. And this message is infuriating to ruling elites. 
And so they have continually, all through history up till this very moment, continually uh, felt like this is a dangerous people and we need to warn our people to not listen to them, to not pay attention to what they, they say. Now, what's the Jewish response? Well, the elites of the Jewish world have a, the following response. Don't worry, they, they want to cuddle up to the ruling, ruling powers. So they say, don't, don't be angry at us. That's just our religion. It's not something we take seriously. We're not going to be involved in, in anything to upset you. And, and sometimes that's worked for some periods of time. Uh, but when things got bad enough, um, then they, they've turned to us as the demeaned other. Now, we're not the only demeaned other. And in the United States, we were lucky to find the African-Americans and Native Americans as the primary demeaned others. So we weren't the major target. But when things get bad or when people feel the need to find targets, the Jews become the targets again for that reason that they, that, um, they are something that feels that we are a group that is potentially destructive of the given order. Because we're not just saying things can change. We're saying we are the living proof of it. We were slaves and now we're free. So anybody who's telling you that nothing fundamental can be changed, our very existence is proof that something fundamental can be changed. No, so, so then the smarter part, people in the ruling elites say back, okay, then don't tell us that, um, that you're not dangerous. You are, you, those of you, you know, the, the, the Kushners of the, of the family, right? The, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, what's his name? The lawyer, the Dershowitzes of the family. They're going to be on our side. I know they're going to, they're going to be with us, the powerful, no matter what, what we do. And we can trust you. But the rest of you, you have this Torah and every week, you read this story that is a destabilizing story that's telling that you were slaves and now you're free. And, and, and not just saying that as a slogan, but every week you're telling exactly how it happened and how God was there for you, with this God was there for you and made this happen. You're telling a story that is in its essentials, a revolutionary story, no matter how patriarchal, no matter how many times it has things in it that aren't that revolutionary, its essence is a revolutionary story and we hate you for it. We don't want people to like you. We don't want people to hear your message. Even if you promise not to make it your message, you're making it your message as long as you read this Torah every week and, and say, we, you know, you, we, this happened for us. This really happened for us. So I don't know how I got on here, but oh yeah, right. You asked me, what's, where's, where's God in this? Or what's, so of course I'm celebrating this God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, people who are who are in the resistance nowadays. Yes. Um, it's it, uh, I think it's it's very easy to get discouraged and 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 eventually say, what's the point? We're not getting anywhere. How do we? Keep, how do they keep on going? What do you? How did you find the determination to keep on going for all this time? Okay, well, those are two different questions because I can't speak for the people who are in the resistance right now. I can speak for me and say, knowing Jewish history, this is, I know that I am part of a people that's been around for at least a good 3,000 years that has gone through worse, significantly worse times than this, okay? 
I mean, the Holocaust, but also expulsion from Spain, also destruction of the Second and First Temple, etc. I mean, been through a lot worse times than this this time, and have nevertheless survived and kept going. And um, so, every morning when I pray, you know, I reconnect to that um, that um, tradition and that force. And then every Shabbos, I take off of 25 hours of nothing but celebrating the universe on the one hand and celebrating our freedom on the other hand. Zecher l'masa bereshit, in remembrance of the events of creation, and zecher l'tzit mitzrayim, in remembrance of going out from, from Egypt, our, our liberation. So this, is, this has been, we've been around a long time. And I get a lot of sustenance out of really taking that seriously and understanding that this is a truth that means that there's a, that there's a future. And as the, you know, Solomon, when he was looking to put his um, to to get a, something to put on his um, his ring, he said he asked all his advisors, "Come up with something that will always be true." Well, none of them none of them could come up with anything. He finally put on it, "Gamze Yavor." This too will pass. Okay, this too will pass. Okay, that's what I have to say. Um, imagine you were in 1943 in a concentration camp. Wouldn't you be full of despair? Yeah, of course you would. You'd have no way of imagining that two years later, um, Hitler's whole apparatus was being uh, uh, taken apart and replaced by something, something different and that uh, three years after that, the state of Israel would be created as a place where refugees to go to, Jewish refugees to go to. So um, that's, that's how I stay connected, by knowing our history and, knowing, and then taking our traditions seriously. And I get huge amounts out of praying each morning and out of uh, observing Shabbat in a relatively rigorous way. Mine also has to do with uh, what you just asked, which is how do we continue the struggle? And there is a way to do that through the uh, network of spiritual progressives, because we are starting uh, a uh, greater Phoenix uh, chapter of the uh, network of spiritual progressives. And I want to pass out uh, a flyer, if I could, just as my email address on it, because I just met Nancy uh, Swain, I just met with uh, Rabbi Erner for 15 minutes and asked the question, what do we do next? And he says, uh, gather people together to study the book uh, Revolutionary Love so, and then see where it takes you. So that, that's true. I'll, uh, I'll pass around. Uh, yes, maybe, maybe I'll pass. Oh, oh, okay, please. Oh, yes, yes, please. And I'll pass around the copy of the book so you can see it, and there'll be a... Um, let's, take, let's take one more question. When you were talking about the people like Dershowitz and so are those the Jewish neoconservatives? Oh, the neoconservatives. The, Who are the Jewish neo... How do you define Jewish neoconservatives? I don't know well, okay, I don't know if I have a definition, but I have an identification. Okay, that's okay. perfect. Okay, here's... They are people who um, are former liberals who move to the right, okay, move to the right and support um, and are still um, um, supportive of the human rights of groups like women, gays, 
uh, and um, other um, oppressed groups, but have, other than that, bought into the, um, uh, the I'm talking about the neoconservatives now, right? That right. They've bought into the conservative agenda, but they're neoconservatives in that they haven't given up totally on uh, rights of oppressed groups. Not to say that they're on the leadership of them or that they are in the vanguard of their struggles, but that they, um, so they come from a liberal background and they still believe in some, you know, some degree of rights for oppressed groups. So that, um, that made it possible for Jews to be leading neoconservatives. Um, they, but they brought into all the rest of the, the, um, of the uh, conservative agenda, including militarism, domination of the world, uh, um, loyalty to capitalism, et cetera. Okay, thank you. Okay. Okay, I'm afraid we have to pause here. Thank you, Temple Solal, for hosting. Thank you all for joining. Thank you, Dada Lerner. And we will be, um, we will be, we be uh, you saw our handout already with all the things going on, but tonight, 7 o'clock at Temple High, Revolutionary Love. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if you can't come, but you have friends that you think might enjoy it, because actually the heart of what I have to say, I didn't say today, but I, I'm saying that's for tonight. That is to really explain what a strategy would be to bring back people who should have been on our, who once were on our side and who have been alienated, to bring them back to, to us. And um, that, that strategy could make a big difference in the short run in this election, but it's not, it, the book is not primarily about this election. It's about the next 20 years of what a strategy and a vision of a world that would be based on the values of, um, well, actually Jewish values. Uh, on, um, so that's why I call it love and, um, love and justice movement. A love and justice movement, or in a large, slightly larger sentence, of the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. But how, what that's going to look like, come tonight. You can't come tonight, buy the book. But more importantly than buying the book, because I am not, I'm not here as a salesman to make some money. On the contrary, don't tell my publisher, but I'm telling you, as far as I'm concerned, you could make Xerox copies of the book and <laughs> sell it to your friends or give it to your friends. I'm interested in your reading it, because what really, um, actually in the other book that I published, uh, on, on Israel-Palestine, I say in, in it, publish it, you know, copy the book, but publishers got very angry. So um, um, I'm saying to you, absolutely, as far as you, I have, you have my permission, to, as long as you promise not to tell the publisher that I say this, okay? I don't care. Please, please read this book. I think it will change your mind about what politics could be about. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.